Hello everyone and welcome back to the Cloisterbell podcast. This week we're doing a mini-sode all about The Long Game, which was a 2005 episode of Doctor Who. And Liam's here too. Hi there. And I'm Rob. So I didn't say. <laughs> so yes, uh, just a, a mini-sode where we'll be briefly looking at The Long Game. Uh, Rob, you suggested that we look at this episode and for God's sake, why? Well... I realised we didn't have a ninth Doctor episode mm-hmm. um, covered already, so I picked my least favourite. Ah, oh, right, okay, so this is your least... Right, okay, that's right. Well, I wouldn't say it's one of my least favourite Doctor Who episodes. Mm-hmm. But just of but the episode. Yeah. If you have to pick one of the 13, this is unlucky 13, this is the worst, I don't know. I watched the trailer for this, mm-hmm after Dalek and I felt really let down I thought the the series so far had a lot of momentum and I was quite excited by it and then I thought what's happening next week it just looks a bit naff but when I did come to watch it the following week um, it was entertaining enough, it was good Mm -hmm. Um, so I'll read the plot Um, new companion of the ninth doctor, Adam Mitchell which is... Oh, what's his name in Corrie? Uh, I, can't... I know the actor's Bruno Langley, but I don't know the character he plays in uh, Coronation. It's Todd. Todd, okay. Alright, oh, oh, Todd, yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, so, um, new companion Todd takes his first trip in the TARDIS. The ship materialises in Satellite 5, a space station that broadcasts across the entire fourth great and bountiful human empire. However, something is amiss. The Empire's attitude to technology are backwards. Those who are promoted to floor 500 simply disappear. Humanity is possibly being manipulated by the news. And who exactly is the sinister editor's employer? So it's all about fake news. It is, yes. It's all about fake news. So, I mean, I suppose in that uh, in that sense, you, you, could, uh, you could argue that this story has become... A bit more pertinent than than perhaps when it was originally broadcast. Um, also, when Adam interfaces with this computer, mm-hmm. it says that microprocessors will be redundant in the year uh, 2019, which is basically computers and laptops. <laughs> yeah, and we've still got a bit of time. Yeah, I mean. December the 31st, it will probably be, you know, when, when laptops and everything will, will yeah. become redundant. I mean, obviously, that's kind of happened with tablets and phones, but um, uh, it, Russell T. Davis has predicted that it'll be replaced by single molecule transcription. Yep. Watch this space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watch this space. Yeah. What's your opinion on Russell T. Davis episodes? The a bit hit and miss or is it really good writing poorly um, executed I think I think as time's gone on I, I've come to appreciate them a bit more um, at the time when when they were originally broadcast I found they were t- my personal take on them was that they were a bit hit and miss um, but looking back on them now I find them quite engaging um, quite enjoyable I think uh, I think the big thing about Russell T Davis is he sort of, and I don't I don't I don't mean to suggest he isn't a thoughtful writer, 
uh, he, he clearly is in terms of Doctor Who and, uh, and other things that he's written. But he seems to be someone who um, goes with instinct and sort of writes from the hip and just, or rather shoots from the hip rather, and just uh, writes things at a very, very quick pace. Mm. Uh, I know that Terence Dix uh, on, a, on occasion hasn't been um, particularly favourable to Russell D. Davis, saying that he is someone who will produce a first draft and then just use that. So, uh, Terence Dix's take on it is that um, Russell T. Davis probably needs some rewrites. Mm, possibly. Uh, yeah. uh, what's your take? Uh, well, no, I like how he doesn't go for just the, the big standout epic stories. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's not afraid to jump in and do the filler episodes like... Oh, what was the unmemorable Series 2 episode? The Doctorless episode. The, the which one, sorry? Uh, exactly, um, I've forgotten. <laughs> I don't think... What oh, was I... the, the, the episode about Elton? And the Absorbaloth? Oh, uh, Love and Monsters. Love and Monsters, yeah. Yeah, the episodes are, are a bit hit and miss. I mean, because mm. I remember when... when... The long game was originally broadcast. My initial ins- uh, reaction was, I wasn't particularly keen on it. I mean, I've got to be honest. It took me a while for me to get into the revived series of Doctor Who in general, anyway. Yeah. Um, so th- I wasn't, I wasn't sort of massively taken with it. And when the long game was broadcast, I thought, oh, this is just, um, this looks cheap. This doesn't look particularly good, and. Um, this seems a bit um, filler and can yeah. can easily be forgotten about. But actually, when you suggested that we would quickly look at this, so when I rewatched it, I was aware. My initial instinct was I was aware of how cheap the whole thing looked. Um, yeah, this is clearly an episode that that, that was done for budgetary reasons. You know, you've got the same set effectively redressed um, on several occasions in the story. And but, we'd also have two further episodes in this series with the same set. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But the thing is, um, I, so my initial negative reaction was quickly forgotten about, and I just threw myself. You know, was able to just quickly enjoy the story. I mean, Adam Mitchell was a surprise because if I, I'm totally honest, I'd completely forgotten about his character. Yeah. Um, so when he exited the TARDIS, it was just oh, I forgot about him. Um, but I did find the end, uh, the episode. Uh, quite enjoyable but in many respects i think it's only rememberable for the fact that essentially it it's what you've just said it sets up um the the final story of the season i I think possibly that might have been the premise that russell t davis started with he -hmm. wanted to seed something for the finale Mm -hmm. and possibly wrote it around that yeah, I mean, because it's quite surprising. You've got Dalek, which sets it up uh, quite well, because you, you can see the effect of one Dalek. So when in the series finale, you've got thousands of them, um, mm. it really ramps up the danger. But then it's sort of surprising that, because in many ways, the long game ca- is still quite a forgettable episode. So it's a bit of a surprise when you do get to the parting of the ways that the long game set that up, mm-hmm. both in terms of... Uh, the reason why the Daleks are able to take over in the first place. Um, but there's only the kind of minor callbacks to the long game 
isn't there? You, you didn't really need the episode. No, so that's much. true. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, as the episode starts off, the Doctor lets Rose introduce Adam to the destination on Saturday Five. And this is one occasion where Rose kind of fibs just to sound smart. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Another time would be the Christmas Invasion. You know, she name drops the Daleks and the Shadow Proclamation. Mm-hmm. And later again, um, in Series 4's Turn Left, um, we would have a more mature Rose, sounding more intellectually smart, mm-hmm. um, which I quite liked. But then at one point, Donna asks, well, what does, th- what does that mean? And Rose's response is basically, oh, I don't know. It's just the kind of thing the Doctor would say. Oh, right, okay. which, I didn't, which I didn't quite like because um, obviously she does know what she's talking about to an extent what did you think about that in turn left do you think it's a favourable part of her story arc that you like the fact that she's changed so much by then yeah I think so It because it, 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 it shows that she has continued to develop um, off screen it would be mo- it would be more odd if um she had come back and turned left and essentially been the same character. Well, yes. As she left in... Um, oh, I've forgotten, uh, forgotten the name of her last story with Tennant. Um, as an ongoing companion. But, uh, yeah, no, it uh, it works. It makes a lot more sense that she's continued developing, that she's um, much more confident. Yeah. Um, anyway, the Doctor then introduces them to what's outside the viewing window, doesn't he? Yeah. Which is Earth of the Year 200,000. Mm-hmm. And it's the fourth great and bountiful human empire. And he explains how Earth is this hub of a galactic domain spanning like a hundred, well, a million planets and species. And I'm wondering, why is it that science fiction quite often depicts the human race as like a dominant species or leader amongst other alien races. Do you think this is quite a likely outcome or is it just pure vanity in the writing? I think it can come from from two things. I think one, it comes out from a practical sense of going, well, if humanity is to explore the stars in the way that we see it in science fiction, what would be the purpose of that? Because if it was for, if we are going beyond... um, uh, oh, I'm going to phrase this. If we're going beyond the initial scientific investigation and we're we're established, I think it's much easier to uh, thrust into a, um, a dynamic and interesting story. And I think there's a sense of e- it's it's a lot easier to establish our uh, humanity is this great powerful thing and, and can go off. But if you really want to analyse it, you could actually argue well. If you look at the origins of science fiction and literature, which is when it first began, what were, what were its major concerns? Although you have the likes of, of Jules Verne in uh, in France, science fiction really sort of like takes off in, in, in Britain, arguably, certainly with H.G. Wells. And when you're having a look at things like The War of the Worlds, one of the ways that that story has been analysed uh, by some is that you know this this was written at a time when uh, the British Empire was still in existence, mm-hmm. so it was it was looking at um, perhaps concerns that the British had of 
what if this powerful alien force outside attacked the Empire? So the, uh, people have analysed um, some aspects of early science fiction in, in that respect. So if it's in its very origins, uh, if that is indeed the case, which I think is an interesting take on it, um, then if, if it's in its very origins of the genre, then perhaps it makes sense that somehow it's it's permeated and it's, it's still having an effect today. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the Doctor refers to Adam as Rose's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a different attitude towards Adam than he does Mickey. Um, do you think perhaps he sees Mickey as more of a real threat to come between them? And not Adam. Yeah, because I think, um, yeah, I think the way that he looks at Mickey is that you know he he's someone who um, may not be particularly smart, but he is capable. Yeah. Whereas um, Adam's character, I think you kind of see this in the previous story, Dalek, and then obviously it's carried on to this way. He probably sees him more as just a a pretty boy, probably for the yeah. very reasons that Rose was initially attracted to him. But beyond that, there's 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 nothing much there. Um, and of and course, as... when Adam essentially goes bad at the end, to an extent, um, the Doctor is very defensive, and he kicks him off the TARDIS, takes him home. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm guessing this is probably just because of Rose. Maybe he's been a bit overprotective. Well, I think uh, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's uh, yes, he's being uh, protective of Rose, just in the comparison to Mickey, because even though you know. He probably mocks uh, Mickey for for not having the smarts, but he knows that his heart's in the right place, and he is capable and wouldn't put them in danger. Whereas what Adam's done is has done something incredibly dangerous, and he changed the whole dynamic and could have easily made uh, the situation um, worse for the Doctor and Rose because they were in a position of strength. Because um, the editor, played by Simon Pegg. Um, didn't know who the who the Doctor and Rose were, but then suddenly he's got all this information because of the stupidity of Adam, yeah. and and they almost get access to the TARDIS. So yeah. it's not surpri- it's not surprising that the Doctor's annoyed. Yeah, no. So with Adam doing what he did, you could look into it and think that he had his own reasons. I think in an early draft of the script, and then also later in a comic, he was doing he was doing this. Just to help one of his sick parents. Yes. Whether it was to capitalise on that or 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 something. Uh, But regardless of that, do you if it was you in the situation, and you've got the potential to get all this knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, would you try and exploit that to an extent? Yeah, I Um, think I think it would uh, it would it would cross your mind, but. I suppose it just depends on your um, your personality. Your personality, the type of person, yeah. Yeah. I always try and think, what would I do if I was so and so doing what they did? But ultimately, it um, I wouldn't do what they did. So. No, no, that's the thing. I mean, because with this, because you're you're dealing with something that can affect the the brain with yes. with implants. Um, I think I would balk at that idea and go, mm, nah, it's it's all right. Yeah. And you're already travelling with the Doctor. I mean, how better can it get? <laughs> exactly. The Doctor sees something wrong with the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, does this imply that established history ha- has been honoured? 
Yeah, I, that's that. That's how. That's how I read it. That somehow. Yeah. Um, originally. Originally, it, ha- it, it hadn't been like this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's no alien species. Very convenient for the costume department. <laughs> they must have been thrilled. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But that's I mean, but that's that's written into into the episode, and yeah. sort of sort of explained. Yeah. One of the things that uh, that I happened to um, come across was that apparently uh, Russell T. Davis had written to the Pro- Doctor Who production office in the early 1980s um, with an idea of a Doctor Who story, and it was it was pretty much this. Oh really? Yeah, um, <laughs> but they declined it, and then apparently had given them advice to write something a bit more down to earth something dealing with business managers uh, so this is the one he had in the bag all ready to go mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so I was like, all right okay would have been interesting had uh, i mean i don't know whether it was a, a proposal or he'd actually sent them a script if there's an original script floating around of it it'd be interesting to see how he'd written for classic doctor who yeah um in terms of in terms of the episode, are there any any moments that stand out? Any favourable moments? I can think of a few bad moments off the top of my head. Oh, well, go on then. Let's hear the bad moments. Well, I hadn't noticed how bad it was at the time. Mm-hmm. But the CGI is pretty poor, especially in the heads. Yes, yeah, yeah. That hasn't dated particularly well. Maybe that comes from watching it in HD. Possibly, but I mean, even even at the time when it was broadcast in two thousand and five, I I mean, I don't think it didn't look as poor as it does with, with modern eyes. But I don't no. think it looked particularly great at the time as well. Yeah, and there's a few noticeable things like when they're on each floor. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the camera's locked off, and the the backdrop of floor sixteen or whatever. Yeah, is just a um, a digital painting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's blatantly obvious. The the Jaguar Fest looks pretty good. Like it's quite glossy and um, well, not not obviously not quite photorealistic, but mm-hmm. that's quite good. Yeah, that, that's quite funny because I remember when I first watched this back in two thousand and five. I went, "Oh, that doesn't look good." But watching it now, for some reason, it doesn't bother it doesn't bother me as much. Yeah, I don't mind the space station itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like the arc in space. The face of Bo is pregnant. On the Bad Wolf channel. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, so let's talk about the editor. Yes, played by Simon Pegg. Yeah. So, do you think... Or maybe you love the character, um, but do you think it was poorly written, poorly executed, or, or do you think it was really, really entertaining? I think it was entertaining. I think in terms of the writing of it, I think it was probably... I think it was just, you know, a, a pretty bog-standard, evil businessman-type villain. Um, you know, this sort of, you know, following the tropes and, you know, just started written. Nothing that sets the world on fire, not, nothing particularly poor either. I think what makes it work, though, is Simon Pegg's performance. Um, he's the one who lifts lifts it up. I quite like it. I mean, he's clearly relishing being in the program and playing the part. Yeah. And I mean, I think we forget now is that because we, 
not no one, not even the people involved with making the show, knew if this was going to be a success or not. This could have been the last throw of the dice of making Doctor Who, and it may not have proved successful, and this could have been it. Um, so Simon Pegg at the time was probably looking at this may be the only opportunity I get for, you know, this is the one and only time I get in being Doctor Who, I'm going to enjoy it as much as possible. Um, and he clearly does. And I like the way he, I, I love the way he plays the part. I don't think it's his best performance. And there's something very Simon Pegg about it, as opposed to, you know, when, when you see him in other things like Star Trek, for example, or Mission Impossible, you know, he's clearly acting, he's playing a part. Yeah. Whereas with this, I feel like he, I think he's brought a lot more of it, more of himself to it. But it's yeah. a delight to watch. I do enjoy it. Yeah, I almost wish there was a bit more material there from the work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Was there any scary moments in this? We had the the frozen zombies and the Jagrafess, well, and we had Simon Pegg. Well, how yeah, would you, how would you rank them? From terrifying to not terrifying. Well, that's the thing. I don't think this is a particularly terrifying episode. And I'm <laughs> not one for jump scares. But there was one in this episode which I actually thought was quite effective. Uh, it's when Suki has just been promoted. And then she goes to floor 500. And, you know, everything's covered in snow and everything's icy. And I like the look of the set at that point. The way it's dressed and the way it's lit and everything. And then she comes across uh, these skeletons. And I think she does this thing where she, um, you know, she touches a, a chair, and then, and then from the audience's point of view, the skeleton like drops into view, <laughs> doing this jump scare, which I thought was quite effective. I thought that was, you know, it was handled quite well. It was nice, so I liked that. Um, that was probably the scariest the episode was. But still, not much um, sense of a villain was there, because the Jagrafest didn't seem like some great in- intelligent. Creature. No, it was just this enormous, this this massive blob. I mean, and he's kind of looking down, grumbling orders at the editor. Yeah, and it had me thinking: was this an analogy of um, what goes on behind the scenes? Like, is the Jagrafess Russell T Davis, or <laughs> is the Jagrafess BBC bosses? I don't know. It's clearly Rupert Murdoch. Um, <laughs> that's the way that I interpret it. This is it's Rupert Murdoch. Just this this big enormous blob is just shouting orders <laughs> so apparently Russell T Davis planned something a bit more elaborate for the holes in the head something like the the brain peeling open and you'd see more of the brain yeah I'm not surprised that I'm not surprised they didn't do that not well just I think simply... I think the thing that held them back was um, it wasn't practical for them to do uh, well, yeah, because th- th- there's obviously that. But even if it was, I think... I th- I th- be too grotesque. I think that would be too grotesque. And, yeah, there's no way they would have got away with that. No. But as far of, as... Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say, because uh, the, there are... Um, there is one moment in here, which I do quite like, which is a line of dialogue that the Doctor has, where he's talking about how time travels like visiting Paris. You can't just read the guidebook. You've got to throw yourself in. Yeah, uh, you know, eat the food, use the wrong verbs, get charged double, and end up kissing complete strangers. That I really like. I think that's a really nice line. It's a it's a very nice moment. Um, so that's that's probably the the one strong moment I take from from this episode. I just think it's a bit of a shame that that line of dialogue, which I think's great, uh, isn't perhaps used in a better story. Right. Yeah. 
you know, because you've got this thing where it's going, you know, the thing is about time travel, it's like visiting Paris. You can't just read the guidebook. You've got to throw yourself in. But all what it is, they stay in exactly the same area and just eat some dodgy food from a... If it just it just feels a bit wasted. Yeah, it's strange we haven't mentioned till now that about um, Chris's performance it was really good throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Even though there's not many highlights apart from what you just mentioned. Yeah, but, but there's that moment because you know yeah. he's he's telling Adam and Rose just to you know go off and enjoy and go on your travels, and then his face drops because he's. I mean, you could say it's a bit overdone, but it, I think it's effective. You know, he's smiling one minute and then the next minute he's going, oh, he's clocked something's not quite right. One yeah. uh, one other thing that I do really like about this episode is Tasman Grieg's in it and she plays the nurse. I always love it when she appears in something because I, I always love her performances. She always uh, she's always a delight. Oh yes, and when she accepts the money, like um, that will do nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just the way you know the way that she performs certain lines. It's uh, it's sort of unique to to her uh, as an actress. I really like her. Uh, did you ever watch Black Books? No. Oh, that's a shame. That's that was a really good sitcom uh, in which she played one of the main characters in it. Um, yeah, that was good. So with them getting the holes in the head, chips in the head, um, using the brain as a processor mm-hmm. seems plausible. You know, something that could be done in the future. Mm-hmm. But you think by the year two hundred thousand computers would have um, advanced more than the human brain. <laughs> No, that's true, but I mean, as it is sort of explained, the doctor says that this is ancient technology. Yes, this it is just be happening, you know, yeah, yeah. And I suppose it fitted the narrative because all this information came from Adam, didn't it, about the doctor? Yeah. So, as you were saying uh, originally, the reason why you wanted us to have a have a look at this was because it was your least favorite um, episode of the Eccleston era. Is that still the case? Yes, it still stands, but. That's only I had no choice but to, <laughs> to pick that. You know, if I have to pick a least favorite out of only thirteen, mm-hmm. it like I said, the I was I, I was really engaged with the show when it came back. I think I was a bit disappointed because I was looking for tangible links to the Doctor Who that I knew, mm. which weren't quite there. Um, but I I was engrossed in it and possibly the energy kind of fizzled away a little bit by the by this episode. <clears throat> but it soon picked up. I mean, the following episode, Father's Day, I thought was great. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree with that, yeah. Yeah, and it had a lot of continuity um, from before it and then obviously after it, because obviously Adam leaves in Dalek. He's there in the long game. And then this episode sets up the finale. So it's an important episode. Um. So the notion of something controlling the human race, which is is quite an amazing idea, and it has a lot of story potential, because mm-hmm. um, that could feed off you know paranoia things like that. Um, but this story doesn't quite pull on that thread very much. And there's an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, which is probably one of my favourites called The Conspiracy. Have you seen that? Of of what? Sorry. Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, I did. I did watch it now and again. I can't. I can't remember much. Oh, hang on. Is that the episode where uh, people are controlled by these bugs at the back of their neck? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, I do remember that one. That was creepy. 
especially was, towards yeah. the end. Uh, funny enough, that's one of the few episodes that I remember. Um, there's a scene where he meets with the higher ups, yeah, and then he he realizes that they're actually part of this thing because they because of what they're eating or something. Um, yes, but it it has a sort of invasion of the body snatchers kind of fear, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The uncertainty of who's who. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought that was a powerful kind of take on that idea. But um, yeah, the story had potential, but it didn't really go anywhere mm-hmm. in that respect. Yeah. So do we agree this wasn't a memorable episode? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that because of of all the episodes, it, it it's not one that sort of leaps leaps to mind. Um, it's only that I, re- I remember watching it when I when I'm watching it again, going, oh, I remember seeing this, but it, before then, I mean, I, as I said, I completely forgotten Adam was a character uh, until I watched this. He he completely left my memory. Um, and yeah, it's it is a bit of a funny one in that it's important that it sets up uh, the finale. There are things in it, but in of itself, it's it's a fine episode. It's enjoyable, but it's um, there are much more. I mean, because it's it's not my least favorite of the series. Um, that that honor goes to Aliens of London uh, for me, um, but I but I remember more of Aliens of London than I do than uh, the Long Game. Uh, but Aliens of London, I seem I quite liked at the time. No, I, d- I didn't like it at the time, and I, I went back. I, I've seen uh, when was the last time I saw this series? Uh, it's been a few years. And again, when it came to Aliens of London, World War Three, I really didn't like that story. Probably didn't need to be a two-parter. It didn't need to be a two-parter. It's Doctor Who resorting itself to fart gags, which I haven't have a have mm. an issue with. Yeah, it's not it's not particularly great. At some point, I will be interested to see how... Because I know that the Slitheen turn up in the Sarah Jane Adventures. And I've heard some people say that they work far better in the Sarah Jane Adventures than they do in Doctor Who. Um, so I'll be interested to to look into that at some point. Yeah, there's probably more Slitheen episodes in Sarah Jane than there is Doctor Who itself. Mm-hmm. And we got to see infant ones and different coloured ones. And we're going to learn oh, more, okay. more about their culture. Um, Ronnie Corbett was a Slitheen. Was he? Yeah, and um, I think he's... Hmm. Yes, and there's a little gag because his name's Ronnie. And then there's the character Ronnie... In Sarah Jane, and then um, this, oh, this is, by the way, this is a comic relief scene. Ah, oh, right, okay, that makes sense. Um, but then he, he laughs and he says, "Oh, the two Ronnies." <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, right? I need to watch this. Okay, I'm sold. Okay, I'll not spoil it, but uh, you know the fart gags there. I think to, uh, I think it is. Okay, right. Mm, <laughs> I'm not sold now, but okay. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening. Make sure to check back next week when we'll have a new podcast out. And make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. We're on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, Liam, that's, we no longer call that iTunes. Yes, I heard the news that uh, Apple have scrapped iTunes. <laughs> so, 
We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, <laughs> and all other good podcast directories. Well, not all of them, but we're out but, there. But we're getting there. Yeah. Go to cloisterbell.co.uk and click subscribe, and there's a list of where you can listen to us. And we've got lots of other great podcasts on there too, haven't we? Yes, we have. Each one each one wonderful. So go back to... Um, we've reviewed <laughs> Jodie Whittaker's first series, and um, we've done a whole load of past Doctor Adventures, and we've already touched upon some of the big finish uh, first three, I think. Yes. And we're currently doing the next lot, all the ones from the year 2000. Mm-hmm, yep. And we've recently done our first book slash audio book review of Scratchman. Yeah, so check that one out because um, uh, we talk we talk about that book in great detail. Yep, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Cool. See you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>